Hi, my name is Lucas. Tonight's scripture is in the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. And we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you so much, Lucas. What a great job you did reading our passage and leading us in the Lord's Prayer. Would you join Lucas and I in Matthew chapter 28, right at the end of Matthew's Gospel? We're going to return to that passage as we explore our third core practice. Then I want to give you a word and an image. But before we do that, I want to ask you a question. Who was your mentor? Maybe, for some of you, who is your mentor? And maybe you don't have that formal mentor-mentee relationship, but think back on your life and ask yourself, who has had a significant impact on my life, my life with God, my life as a parent, my work life, my vocational life? Who are those people that have come across your path that have had a significant impact? Let me tell you about my first mentor. Beyond my parents and those that have shaped my life, my first official mentor. His name was Mark Kirkendall. Shout out to Mark. He's in ministry now in East Texas. And he took a chance on me in my first ministry internship. You see, at the end of high school, I had felt drawn to ministry. And so he invited me to learn for a summer what ministry, particularly student ministry, looks like. So what I had imagined, and to be honest, I was tempted to imagine this again years later in seminary, was that ministry was like meeting people at coffee shops and sipping coffee and talking about the grandest theology, the finer points of our faith in scripture. And to be honest, I've had a lot of coffee and have met a lot of you in coffee shops. But then out of those deep conversations, I would retreat to my study to collect the theological tomes, to exegete the scriptures. You get what I'm saying here? And then bring a word down from this hallowed space to you, lovely folks. And I imagine that as I preached and teached or taught, that you would be hanging on my every word. You see, that's what I had imagined ministry to be. 
And of course, I know, I know, I'm literally preaching right now. I'm not sure that you're hanging on my every word, but of course it involves theology and exegeting the Bible. But in my imagination, it was this high and lofty exercise. What happened that summer was a wake-up call or perhaps a reality check. Because the first day I arrived as a summer intern, I found my mentor my boss, my student pastor, meeting me in the parking lot and asking me to get in the truck. So I oblige. I get in the truck thinking that we'll have some coffee and some deep theology later. Well, instead, we drove to Walmart and he was looking all around until he found some kiddie pools and pancake mix. We threw him in the cart, went back to the truck, and he started to ask me questions about my life. He was sharing stories about his. We drove around Garland till we wound up at a student's house. You know, the kind of student that was kind of on the bubble, on the margins. And he was encouraging this student to come to an event that was coming up and to check in on this student. Then we get back in the truck, and then he gets a phone call. Maybe it was a phone call from a parent, and I'm listening in the passenger seat to him reassuring this parent about this student, what he's observed on Sundays and Wednesdays. He hangs up. We go to lunch. We start to talk more about our life. He's asking questions. Then we come back for a planning meeting. Now, this starts to feel a little more like ministry to me. And then I find out what those kiddie pools and pancake mix was for. (laughs) You see, that would be an event that we would lead together later on where you throw a bunch of pancake mix in a kiddie pool, add some water, and instead of dodgeball, you've got a pancake mix war. The reason why I remember that is because I have known what it takes to get dried pancake mix out of my hair. You see, that kind of day and week and rhythm was repeated over and over and over throughout that summer. But more than anything, it was the remarkable access that our student pastor had given to me, to Amy. We met each other in that youth group and so many other students that made a profound and lasting impact in my life, not only as a minister, but in my life with God and others. You see, your mentor relationship may look different in the particulars. Hopefully it didn't involve pancake batter wars. But you know what's the same, I'm sure? The time and trust and relationship that fostered that growth, that encouraged that life, that made a difference. You see, when we talk in Christian circles about discipleship, effectively what we're talking about is a relationship that involves trust and time and real life. You see, I was given access to his real life. I got to see what was only in theory and lofty. I got to see all of that embodied. Of course, we sat down and read and discussed theology. But what was so vital was how that theology and real life got brought together and I was discipled. I was apprenticed. I was mentored. A relationship of time and trust. So, in the neighborhood church, we talk about our five core practices 
Because our faith is never just meant to be believed, it was meant to be lived. So our third core practice really gets this going, drives this home, when we talk about growing disciples. Taking that theory and real life and putting it together, that's the life of a disciple. What we mean when we say our third core practice, grow disciples, is this. We commit to invite people into a relationship with Jesus by baptizing, teaching, and sending them on mission. Does that sound familiar to you? Well, it should because it's there in front of you in Matthew 28. It's what we just heard read, and it's where we're going to return in just a moment. It's famously known, Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20, as the Great Commission. That's our third core practice, is really a restatement of the Great Commission. And it follows our own restatement of the Great Commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's really core practice one and two, the Great Commandment, that gives birth to the Great Commission, our third core practice. Every church should be a great commandment church and a great commission church. Then you have a great, healthy church. So how are we doing, neighborhood church? Well, there's always room for growth as we grow disciples. So our first half of our message, I'm going to give you a word. The second half, as I said a moment ago, I want to give you an image. First, our word. But let me tell you a word before our word, and let's dig down a little bit deeper into that word disciple. Disciple is basically another word for apprentice, and every apprentice or disciple has a master or a teacher. Whether you're an apprentice to a tattoo artist, you are learning and watching, and then eventually the apprentice has to actually do it. If you're a master woodworker, you watch, and then you're taught, and then you do. You see, an apprentice is to learn to do what the master does in the way the master does it. And it's within that context of a relationship of trust and time. Jesus' disciples are grown the same way. I love what pastor, author, and even former NFL player Derwin L. Gray says when he talks about discipleship or apprenticeship. Listen to this. A disciple is an apprentice of Jesus in the community of Jesus who relies on the life of Jesus through the Holy Spirit's presence and power to reproduce Jesus' life, ministry, and mission. Did you catch that last part? We are to reproduce our master's life mission in our own lives and the lives of the world. So when Jesus gathers his closest apprentices on the mountain after he was raised from the dead, he effectively says, school's out. You've learned from me how to live like me. So here's the keys. Go and do likewise. And as you go in my way, recruit more apprentices. But these apprentices are going to be apprentices of Jesus. You see, the word. You ready for the word? This is the word I promised I was going to give you. And you got to get ready for it, okay? 
because it's a word that I made up <laughs> and it's a word that you are going to roll your eyes at. So just get ready. Here it is. Drum roll, please. The word is withness. Withness. Discipleship is about withness. Okay. Did you get your eye roll out of the way? Did you get it out of your system? Hear me out. Disciples are sent to bear witness to Jesus, deeply rooted in the reality of the withness of Jesus. Oh, bear with me, bear with me. You just rolled your eyes again. I'm a preacher. What do you expect me to do? The withness roots our witness. Y'all know what a witness is? It's someone who speaks to what they have seen, heard, and experienced. So as these disciples go out to recruit new disciples, they're saying, it's true, we've seen it, and we're going to show you this way, because the teacher that walked so long ago is still teaching. The healer that healed so long ago is still healing. The Savior that walked and brought the life of heaven to earth is still saving, forgiving, drawing you to himself. The king who was enthroned on a cross and raised, vindicated, defeating sin, death, and evil is reigning even now. That's why when Jesus sends out his witnesses, he doesn't just say, I'm with you. He says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. So now go and make disciples. I love the withness of Jesus. And I think you and I need to be reminded here and now of that word, I am with you. I think it's so important that those 11 disciples heard that. Because even though Jesus would soon ascend to the right hand of the Father, he would slip out of earth space and into heaven space. He still says, I'm still here in the overlap. I'm still here with you. And the disciples may be wondering, well, even when we get slandered like you were, I'm with you. Even when we get brought in on trial, persecuted, abandoned, I'm with you. Even when we hurt and the darkness is closing in, I'm with you. I think you need to be reminded that every step of your journey with Jesus is an arrival to some place that Jesus already is. The challenge of the life of the disciple, the apprentice, is to remember that our master, our teacher, is with us even now. It's to develop an awareness of withness here and now, so that when you enter into that hospital space, in that funeral place, in that deep disconnect of relationship, you need to cultivate an awareness of withness that will carry you into those moments through the valley of the shadow to hear. I am with you. Maybe you just need to pause and let that sink in. Even now, he is with you. He is with me. And you know what's powerful? As Jesus gathers those 11 apprentices, he says, and you know what? Look around to your right and to your left. 
look into the screen, look into the comments, look on your phone, and know that they are with you too. You see, it can't be overstated that if Jesus didn't walk alone, why should we? Jesus enters into human experience at oneness with the Father in spirit, yet God with us who are broken and hurting. Jesus was encouraged by his brothers and sisters. Last week in The Woman at the Well, Jesus meets this woman who's disconnected. He initiates a connection out of a place of need. He was tired, he was thirsty, and he didn't care where she was from or what her background was. Jesus was with her, with others. If Jesus didn't walk alone, why should we? And of course, that's even more of a challenge now in the midst of this pandemic than ever before. And that's why it's so important to remind ourselves of the withness, not just God with us, but you and I with one another. It's going to mean we've got to facilitate more connection, not less. This is the conversation that Pastor Bud and I are having. This is the conversation our neighborhood kids team is having. Our student ministry team is having. Our neighborhood group leaders are having. Literally, we're saying this is the year to facilitate more connection, not less. And it's going to take intentionality to take that step. When the Spirit nudges you, act on it. Reach out, call, text, see somebody, meet somebody. Let's do this thing. It's going to take intention. It's going to take creativity. We've got a host of things on the calendar, and we're holding them open-handedly enough to say, if the how has to change, that's fine. But we're going to creatively try to facilitate more connection. You know what else it takes? It takes all of us. It takes a community, those 11 gathered together. And you know what's remarkable about that gathering on the mountain? And man, I love how Lucas read our passage this evening because he really got this powerful nuance of what Matthew tells us. Some worshiped and others doubted. Could you imagine You had heard the rumors of resurrection. You had heard Peter's wild, ecstatic experience of what the others said. And you knew that Jesus was going to meet you at some point in this space, this mountain. So much of Matthew's gospel happens on a mountain. And so you want to believe You want to believe that the rumors of resurrection are true. And so you follow Peter and James and you go with the brothers that have spent time and trust and relationship together for these three years. But you're just not yet convinced. In fact, that word doubted is better translated hesitated. Some hesitated. Could this really be Jesus? Perhaps their hesitation was, could we really worship? Should we really bow down? We've been taught since birth to worship God and God alone. Jesus never asked anybody to worship him. He asked people to follow him. We've been following him, but but now in this encounter, is it really right 
to bow down and worship him as Lord. That's why Jesus says, all authority has been given in heaven and on earth. I'm the reigning Lord, and I bet Jesus never forced them. I am convinced that Jesus created that space, that moment, in that community of trust in which there was just enough room for those that were bowing down as there were those who hesitated. As we facilitate more connection, as we grow more and more into a great commandment and a great commission church, would we be a church that can create just enough space for the worshipers and the hesitators. Why? Because we're a community of growth and we need to have room for the not yet and we need to go to all nations, to those that don't look like us, sound like us, live like us, that have different stories from us. Jesus says, go to all nations. The word there is ethne. The ethnicities, all peoples are invited under my gracious, life-giving, transformative, forgiving reign. I love that the authority Jesus has is an authority over sin and death and evil, but it's never an authority that lords over his subjects into submission. Instead, it's an authority that undoes tyranny and violence so that he might lift the masses to their heart's true home in the loving embrace of a father who wills that all would be saved and come to know Jesus the Christ the reconciling one, the renewing one. And it's our job to go to all corners, all places, to invite others, not just to church, but to that life with Jesus. To say yes to Jesus, because he said yes to you. One of the marks of the early Christian communities was how diverse they are, socioeconomically di diversified um, amongst the nations. It's a movement that originated in Israel. And it's not so much that the church replaced Israel, it's that the church expanded Israel. Not with the 12 tribes of Israel, but on the backs of the apostles, the 11 that will become 12 in Acts, to go as emissaries to grow and expand the tribe and family of God. Oh man, this is exciting, powerful stuff. Here's the deal. It's not just the withness of Jesus, it's the withness of one another. You see, we are formed in community and by community. Think about it. When Jesus tells us to love others, bless others, forgive others, we need an others, right? So just to summarize that first half and that weird word, withness is about learning and living the Jesus way with Jesus's people. That's our word, now our image. Years ago, one of my aunts and uncles, they had a really funky ranch house south of here in Middle Othian. It was wild. It had some crazy furniture. One of the guest bathrooms had black tile and like a black toilet and gold flecks. I mean, this was a party house. This was some kind of wild ranch with a pool and big open spaces. It was wild. I will never forget that house. But the 
piece de resistance of this funky, wild house was that they had a greenhouse. And not just out back on their land, they had it attached to the kitchen. You could open up a door that was unlike all the other doors because it had like a seal on it. And it would go funk. Because within that room was a room unlike any other room in the whole house. It had a different temperature. It had a different humidity level. It had a different everything, a different smell, a different look. It was wild to have a greenhouse off of within your house. There was a hot tub in there, palm trees. It wasn't huge, but man, when you were 12 and 13 years old, that thing was crazy awesome to walk into in my aunt and uncle's house. You see, it was an environment within a broader environment that was different. And it was an environment that was conducive to growth. Growth for plants. This is the image, the image of the greenhouse. The Jesus community is a greenhouse that is within the broader environment of our culture and our world. But it's different. It's different not just because we're a moral people. It's a different kind of morality. It's a life tethered to a different kind of teacher. The Jesus community is a community that's conducive to growth in the Jesus way. So when Jesus sends out his apprentices to recruit more apprentices, he's very clear that they're to make other apprentices to this life, to grow in their discipleship. He doesn't say, go and make converts. He doesn't say, go and get people guilty enough to where they ask me into their heart. He says, go and make disciples. Now, with that image of the greenhouse in mind, what Jesus has in mind is what he says elsewhere as a sowing of the seed. That's how this mission starts. And the seed that's being sown is the good news that he's the reigning Lord of heaven and earth. And he's inviting all into life with God. Their sins can be forgiven. And when you say yes to his life, God gives you his life in return. That's when the journey of discipleship really begins. The seed is sown and the seed is received. So once you begin to make these disciples to announce the good news of Jesus, and then to show them, teach them in relationship the way of Jesus, eventually Jesus tells his disciples to baptize these new disciples. Now this is one of the distinctives of our particular greenhouse, is that we do baptize disciples. Now that doesn't mean that we can't baptize younger children or students, it just means we don't baptize babies. We respect our brothers and sisters in other greenhouses that do. I grew up in a faith tradition in my earliest days in which I was baptized as a baby. But then we went to a new greenhouse and I felt the clear and compelling call to say yes to Jesus, to give my life to him. And so I was actually baptized later 
when I personally appropriated that call in my life of discipleship. So we baptize disciples at the neighborhood church. And when we baptize disciples, what we're doing is affirming that yes, that reception of the seed, and then we're planting them into God's family. We're affirming their unity with Christ, that they're buried with Jesus in likeness of his death, Romans 6, and then raised again into new life. It affirms that unity and it initiates into God's family. At the Neighborhood Church, I love how we baptize. We hear the story of the person being baptized, their own testimony of hearing and receiving the seed, the yes. And we say that moment that happens sometimes quietly at home, it happens maybe in the context of hearing a word of good news like you and I are doing here. Maybe it's in relationship at the neighborhood table or clothes closet or with your neighborhood group. But that moment when the yes is said and I say, Jesus, I give you my life, that's when someone's born. And then at the baptism, we get to celebrate that yes, and it's the birthday party. I used this illustration recently uh, in one of our outdoor gatherings when we were talking in the book of Acts. You're born, but then you have your first birthday party sometime later. This is what's happening with baptism. It's important. It's powerful. It's the public affirmation and initiation to get you planted into the greenhouse community of God's people. Jesus tells his disciples also to teach them to obey everything I've commanded. This is why we keep talking about practices, because our faith was never meant just to be believed. It was meant to what? Be lived. For Matthew, we go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and the teachings of Jesus. And we say, oh, he means what he says. It's meant to be lived. We look at the example of Jesus. So to return to our greenhouse image, not only do we have the seed sown, we have the plant planted and rooted within the greenhouse. We also enter in to the obedience of cultivation, to be fed, to be watered, to be pruned. This week I was talking to someone who's experienced a lot of growth in a sin struggle in their life. And I was able to encourage this person that said, man, I kind of feel like it's a pride thing that I've had a lot of victory from this particular sin struggle. And I said, man, I said, maybe instead of viewing it as a source of pride, view it as a source of celebration. Because the writer of Hebrews says, let's throw off the sin that so easily entangles us so that we can run with perseverance the race marked out ahead of us. You see, the cultivating, the pruning, the dead leaves is what God is calling us to. The Spirit is forming us within and Jesus is showing us as we learn to obey His way to find life. That's the image. Let me round this image home with Paul's own metaphor treatment in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 to 7. Look at it with me here. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. 
So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is really anything, but only God who makes things grow. You see, it's not just that plants need water and pruning. Plants also need the warmth of light and sun. So we do what we can in the developing, the learning, the living, the teaching, the together withness in our groups, in our Bible studies, in our service, in our getting in the truck, as it were, sharing stories in life. We do all those things we can, and we trust God for what we can't do. We trust God for the outcomes to form us, renew us, and give the growth. The Jesus community is the greenhouse in which Jesus followers grow. And Jesus sent his disciples to invite others into the Jesus life first, and then to plant them within the Jesus community. So, do you know why gardeners use greenhouses? I found this quote that's helpful from Hartley Botanical Magazine. Look at it with me. You see, plants need moisture, warmth, and light to grow. A greenhouse stabilizes the growing environment by buffering the ambient temperature and protecting the plants from extreme cold. So let me just wind down here before we close by saying a special word as it relates to the neighborhood kids and the student ministry among us. If you're a student or if you're a parent, this is for you also. Here's the deal. The question is not, are our young people being discipled? Because the answer is yes. There are environments in our culture that is discipling them in the way of consumerism, of sexuality, of how we treat others. They are picking these things up. You and I as adults are picking these things up. But the greenhouse of the Jesus community is that place that provides them that stabilizing, ambient, protective environment to where we can disciple future disciples. Did you catch that? We are trying to provide an environment, whether they're our littlest ones in our neighborhood kids, our students discerning their own call from Jesus, or even those who are the not yet hesitating from wherever and whomever, we want to be an environment that is discipling those who we hope and pray and trust will say yes and make it official so that we might plant them within our community so that we might grow with Jesus, with each other, within the Jesus way in community. So, let me close with some questions for reflection, and I'll send you with another passage of Scripture. Here's the questions I would love it. If you could write down, spend some time with, reflect on, even now as we're about to sing, here they are. Who in our circles needs inviting? And I mean literally. Amy and I were talking about how have we not invited someone to our neighborhood group Zooms? Yeah, it's Zoom right now for January and February, but we know people who are desperate and detached and in need of community, who are the not yets that need inviting. 
Could we commit to do that together? Another question. This is for you and I as individuals. What is impeding our growth? What's the thing that Jesus, the gardener in John 15, is pointing at? The Father, rather, as the gardener, as we remain on Jesus, the vine. Here's another question. Who are we growing with? If you're not a part of a neighborhood group, we would love to get you a part of the neighborhood group. If you just want to be a not yet that are curious more about the broader life of the neighborhood church, please, please, please reach out to me. You can find our number on our website. You can find my email. Talk to us. Finally, a question for reflection. Where do you as a disciple need to hear the words, I am with you? How might you cultivate that awareness of withness? So now, let's close with Colossians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7 in the message translation. Paul says, My counsel for you is simple and straightforward. Just go ahead with what you've been given. You received Christ Jesus, the Master. Now live Him. You are deeply rooted in Him. You're well constructed upon Him. You know your way around the faith. Now do what you've been taught. School's out. Quit studying the subject and start living it. And let your living spill over into thanksgiving. Thanks be to God and amen. Hello. Tonight's benediction is written by Aubrey Smith. May we grow in teaching God's word faithfully, following Jesus obediently, and serving one another joyfully. May God grant us understanding of how high, how wide, how deep, and how long is God's love for us in Christ Jesus. And may we grow into faithful emissaries of that love in our neighborhoods, our city, our nation, and to the ends of earth. May the Spirit empower us to bear the cross of risk, rejection, exile, shame, and sorrow as our Savior bore it, so that the world might know his life and joy. May we labor for this kingdom in hope and perseverance, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, who goes before us. May the light of Christ shine in us as he sends us out. Go in peace.